0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many to many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So in 1858, uh, there's a man named Jean Francois Gravel. And my French is bad, but that's close enough. At least I didn't say Great Block. <laughs> and he came, to visit, uh, he came to visit the Niagara Falls, and he noticed that you could cross the, the Niagara Falls, that, that one side is in New York, and the other side is Ontario, Canada, and he became obsessed with the idea of crossing, because this is what he did, the Niagara Falls on a tightrope from New York to Ontario. And so in 1859, he strung an 1,100-foot rope, just three inches in diameter, across from New York to Niagara Falls. At parts, it's 160 feet above anything, water or anything. When you have the falls in there, he's even higher above the rocks, which he was going to be crossing above. And on June 30th of 1859, he walked across the uh, rope for the first time, and witnesses tell us that it was like he was taking a stroll on a sidewalk. He was so practiced and so good that he just walked across. In fact, he had a name. he did not go by Jean-Francis Lot or Graffalo. He went by the Great Blondin. This is how he was known. And the Great Blondin, for the next two years, crossed back and forth over the Niagara Falls, and ultimately hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people watched him do it. And he did it in more and more aggressive ways. It took him 20 minutes each time. That's how long this was to cross. It would take him 20 minutes to cross one way from New York to Canada, then he'd turn around and come back the other way. And over the crossings, he did it once in a sack, like a sack race, but he's walking across the road. He did it once on a bicycle, rode across on a bicycle. He did it backwards. And people watched it. He probably, people wouldn't have been surprised if he did it on his hands. There's no record that he did. But it was something that he did. And in that first year, 1859, Tens of thousands of people watched for his finale that year. He carried his manager on his back, and they crossed from one side to the other. Next year he came back, and in the summer of 1860, hundreds of thousands of tourists watched as the great London continued to walk back and forth across the rope, as untroubled as if he were traveling and strolling along a broad pathway. At one moment, he carried a stove and cooked an omelet as he crossed. And as he came back the other way, he ate the omelet. As he did each week this year in 1860, he began to pick up a little habit to increase the suspense. He would turn to the crowds, and he would yell so that as many people could hear it as possible. He would say, do you believe I can walk across this rope? And they would cheer, yes! And he would say, do you believe I can do it and cook an omelet? And they would say, yes! And then he would cook an omelet. And they would cheer wildly. Do you believe I can do it on stilts? And they would say yes, if he put on stilts, and he'd walk across. And so for each thing he did, he would ask, do you believe I can do this on a bicycle? And they'd say yes, you know what And he would ride across on his bicycle. And each time the crowd cheered for him to do it, yes, they cried, we believe you. Sometimes he would pretend to, 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 to stop. He'd say, are you sure? I don't know, I can't do it if you don't believe. And they'd say, we believe, like it was a big Peter Pan movie or something. On June 30th, 1859, he said, do you believe I can make the crossing backwards? And he said, yes, we believe you. You can do it backwards. And he did. Walking slowly but confidently backwards all the way from New York, new York to Ontario, supposedly from Witnesses, without once looking over his shoulder. And then it happened. As he began the return trip from Ontario, he was pushing the wheelbarrow. Do you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across? Yes, they said, yes, we believe you can do it. He said, do you believe I can do it blindfolded? They said, yes, we believe you can do it blindfolded. So he put blindfold on, and he grabbed the wheelbarrow, and he began to push. Some say there was a wind that started to blow about this time. Crossed the Niagara Falls and the rope began to sway just a little bit. Some say that as he took his first few steps the smile slipped from underneath his his blindfold. But he kept moving. People said they believed. Others say that he was as confident as ever. And sure enough, as he strode across the rope, it happened. He made it safely to the other side. But I just wanted you to feel for a moment <laughs> <laughs> the tension that surely they felt. The fact is, the wanted never felt. He is one of those nightmare walkers that retired rather than died. <laughs> he made it across from New York to Ontario over and over and over. But what really happened on this day was not just that he made it across, but as he got across in New York, he turned to the crowd, and he said one more time, he said, do you believe I can do it again, blindfolded? And they said, yes. And he said, do you believe I can push someone in this wheelbarrow across the the falls, blindfolded? And they said, yes, we do. And he said, who wants to volunteer? (laughs) Let's pause that story for a moment. But I'll tell you the truth, in the right time, on the right day, I might have volunteered once upon a time. But I wouldn't today. And I certainly wouldn't encourage any of my kids to do it. Or my wife. Would you? Would you climb in that wheelbarrow and let the great wand and blindfolded? Wheel you back and forth, back one more time, from New York to Ontario. You know, Jesus never walked across the high road, but I don't. John says he did so many things that it would fill all the books. (laughs) But I'm not aware of this. But he challenged thousands of people who watched his servants, who attended his servants and saw his miracles. He challenged them with a similar question. A question that said to them, I know you believe me when it's a theory. But what about when you have to sit in the wheelbarrow? Do you trust me that much? And as the people walked to the Great Blonde, and they had days and days and days of (laughs) evidence, right? Their trust in it was not blind. Now, if I stood on one side of Niagara Falls. And I, have, and I have never walked a tightrope. I know I've done a lot of circusy things, but that one I've never done. And I said to you, hey, I want to push you on a wheelbarrow across the Niagara Falls. You would be stupid to give it to <laughs> I'm just telling you that now. But just like the people who asked the Great Blondin, as Jesus said to them, do you trust me or do you trust God? He would remind them of what they also had seen. We didn't talk about tiger ropes, but he reminded the Israelites Remember how God led you across the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land? Do you remember how God led you through the Red Sea? That's a trick, not just across the the Niagara Falls, but what if the Niagara Falls just stopped flowing and you just could walk across the rocks? And he said, do you believe God can part the Red Seas? And the religious leaders around him said, yes, yes, we do. Jesus himself crossed the Jordan. Not on a tightrope, just on the water itself. He just walked across the water. And he asked the apostles, do you believe I can walk on the water? And the apostles said, yes, because we see it. And to Peter's credit, Peter got in the wheelbarrow, if you will. He stepped out on the water himself. Jesus brought people across from death to life. And he brought people from near death to life. And he said, do you believe? And the crowds went wild. He said, yes, we believe. All of a sudden they came and they cheered and and, and berated him. But then Jesus began to ask them things that were a little uncomfortable. He began to ask them to get in the wheelbarrow. He began to ask them to cross with him. To cross from their comfortable ideas of how life worked to some pretty radical, scary ideas. He began to suggest they should turn the other cheek that they should freely give to those who demanded from them, even if those who demanded were their oppressors. Even if they were Roman centurions who had unrighteously taken over their land. He began to suggest they should not only walk within one mile, but two. He encouraged them to love their enemies in actual behavior and not just in theory. He told them to practice their righteousness in secret where they would get no credit for the deeds they did. And we might think that's obvious, but really, for a moment, if you're a Pharisee and your whole life is based upon the idea that people see my example and they grow from it, and then Jesus says, I want you to start doing that stuff without anybody seeing you, you might be tempted to say, what's the point? What's the point? He told them to forgive. Over and over and over. He told them to stop counting on money and prestige and power for their access to things, but only to trust in God. He told them to stop worrying about things that seem right to worry about, like where you will live and what you will eat. We say major on the major, minor on the minors, and Jesus said to them, don't even worry about the majors. He told them to stop judging one another. Stop looking to fix the people around you with the problems that they have. Stop trying to help them and correct them, but instead look at yourself. And see what changes you need to make. He told them to stop following the popular but false prophets. And then he said something else. And the same people who cheered as he fed the 5,000 who walked on water began to feel a little less certain about God's ability to make this crossing with him. And as Jesus watched the people listen to his words and saw that many of them wanted to cheer from the sidelines but weren't willing to climb into the wheelbarrow, Jesus said these words to them. Matthew chapter 7, he says, Therefore, everyone, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock the rains came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who has built his house on sand the rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It's one thing to say, I can cross this rope. It's another to cross it. It's one thing to say, in theory, wouldn't it be cool to write? I don't know if you think this would be cool in theory, but so it's one thing to say, in theory, wouldn't it be cool to ride across the Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow? It's another to do it. That Jesus looks out at the crowds and says to them something that is oddly challenging and extraordinarily encouraging if they were willing to hear it. He says to them, If you are willing to hear what I say and climb into the wheelbarrow, I want to tell you, not only will it be safe, but that is the safest place to be. If you hear my words and you actually put them into practice, not only will you not find that you regret these strange commands that I've given you. But you'll find that when the rains come and the water crashes, that your house will stay firm. But, he says, if you think that just by hearing my words, and cheering blonde and on from the sidelines, that that is enough, then know that your house will collapse. But it's only built on sand. It's like Jesus says, you've seen your God do amazing things. Now let him do these things with you. was a little less sure. You trust God in general, but do you trust him to be the foundation? Do you trust him when it comes to something practical, like your construction of your house? Do you trust him to carry you over the difficulties? Look, like, honestly, I told you, I wouldn't get in that wheelbarrow today. I wouldn't encourage my family to get in there. I'm not sure that I would say there's any sort of nobility encouraging you to do so. And you know why? Because the great woman could fall. Right? I mean, there is no guarantee that just because he didn't fall, he wouldn't this time. And frankly, part of my brain says it's about time. <laughs> just statistically speaking, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. With Jesus, it's a little different. With God, that's the question. Can we fall? Can we fail? Is it wise or is it foolish to put all of our eggs in that basket? It's one thing to believe in theory that God is good, it's one thing to believe in theory that He's smart. It's one thing to believe in theory, that he's sovereign and powerful enough to carry you. But when he calls you to turn the other cheek, when he calls you to let go of the formulas and the foundations that you have built, when he says to you, that is sand and will, will your house will be destroyed, you have to only trust in mine. When he asks you to get in that wheelbarrow, the cheering becomes silence. By the way, that is how this story of reality ends. When the great London said, who wants to volunteer, the crowds went. Silent, and you got to remember, some of them had already seen him carry someone across the, the Niagara Falls, and ultimately, you know who he pushed across the wheelbarrow—the manager, manager who'd already written on his back once. The man who truly believed that Blunder wouldn't fall, couldn't fall, or maybe he just figured there was enough money that it was worth the risk. We don't really know. But that's the question. When Jesus says, trust in what I'm telling you, and the foundation will be solid, that's the question. Is he right? Because if he is, then it's foolish not to go there. But if he saw, then it's foolish to put all your eggs in them. Maybe you should hedge your bets. And a lot of us do. We trust God as far as it's comfortable, and maybe just a little bit further than that. And maybe some of you have heard teachings which make you feel just guilty enough to go a little further than that. But guilt should not be your foundation. It's an interesting thing. Why are we sharing all this today? Why, why even are we going to do a Foundations of the Faith series? Because in my, I'm one of those people now. I've now crossed the fifty threshold. now, you know, 54, Right? I'm now that age where I have to say, right? Because I forget. I'm now that age where I say, in all my years of experience, and Pam laughs at me, but Charlie laughs at me somewhere. But I'm at that age where I say, you know, in all my years of experience, these are some of the most troubling times for our country now I'm an optimist. I am the guy who used to remind people when they thought that violent crime in America was so bad, I used to remind them, do you know crime has been going down every year since 1975? That was true until last year. <laughs> I used to think that I would point out the facts show that this is the most peaceful time in the history of the world. It's still a lot more peaceful than it has been many times in the past, but it's no longer true that it's the most peaceful time in the history of the world. In the last couple of weeks, we've had a rash of uh, violent shootings that are unprecedented if you exclude actual war in our country. It's not just an overhead of media. I media mean, doesn't help, but that's not always. it is. These are troubling times. Things that we thought we could count on, things we had taken for granted. You know, America has in many ways, and I must scorn this. but I think it's totally fine for us to want to go back to that and for us to move forward to that, whatever that means. But but for years, our country was as close to a utopia as the world, many of the world, could envision. Pandemics would hit the rest of the world, and for some reason, we'd be just fine. Ebola was really not a big deal in America. Do you realize the rest of the world was dealing with it the way we have dealt with COVID? We just didn't have to do that. Violent crime? Not a big deal. Not not like it has been in so many other parts of the world. We we could we could live with this comfort that we had things figured out. We knew how to make society work. It wasn't perfect. It's a good good. And in the last three years that conviction has been really shaken. And we live at moments now where we have to ask ourselves, why did we ever think we can abolish? Sith and disease and crime. <laughs> but what do we count on? If the things we've taken for granted are no longer available for us to take for granted, and I'm not preaching doom and gloom, things could get better. There are some things about America that make that potential worse. They could also get worse. I don't know. What do we cling to? What do we trust in? The lots of our formulas are here. You know, it's it's interesting that throughout history, and scripture, in the church, what we see is that the crumbling of one foundation is often what's necessary for the building of another. That as our formulas are taken from us, I think in a personal way, most mature Christians I know have gone through a process, and go through it again and again, where the formulas that they held on to, that they didn't even realize were for formulas, that when they're ripped from them, like Job, they don't know where to go. Then God begins to remind them what they can have. What the real foundations are, what the real truth is—that's that there are no formulas. There's just God. So, in our focus groups, one of the things I really like is we we have, we have decided that we want to have a church where it is the best place to ask the most important questions. It's a weird thing that a lot of churches have have decided to definitely not be that. There are churches which have decided that the really important questions about life and eternity and God and who he is and who you are and death and and, and your identity and all of that, that these are questions you shouldn't ask in church. You should simply hear the answers and move on. But we decided we want our church to be a place where the most important questions can be asked. Because the truth is there's nowhere else sass. And I am delighted that our groups do that. Our groups wrestle regularly with the most important questions, with the uncertainties of life. And we are not afraid to say as a church that there's a whole lot more we don't know than that we do know. (laughs) We're not afraid to say that God has given us some revelation, but not near as much as we'd like. And that even when it comes to God and His ways, there's a whole lot we can never explain. You say to us, "Why does evil exist in the world? Why does God allow the pandemic? And why is He allowing the fires of New Mexico to rage on without bringing us rain? And why did the shooting happen?" And there are some people who will tell you, "Here's the answer. It's complicated. Sit tight." But we will just tell you frankly, honestly, we don't know. <laughs> I mean, we can tell you some things we know, but we can't tell you why. Not. But we understand that in our groups we're not afraid of questions, and we're not afraid of fear, we're not afraid of challenges. And we understand and accept that we're all at different places in different times. So hear me when I say to you, you don't have to be even willing to get in the wheelbarrow to be in one of our groups. You may question whether Jesus can keep that wheelbarrow up. And we'd love to have you explore that with us in our groups. Because where else are you can explore that? Who else will even give you a chance? Much of life is learning to support one another as we even consider the possibility of what it means at this moment, at this time, to get in that wheelchair. What it means to forgive this person, to turn the other cheek at this moment, to work hard for this boss, to love this unlovable spouse at times, to raise these unteachable children, to live with these unbearable parents, to people. We know that that's what it looks like to get in the wheelbarrows day after day after day. What's the challenge in front of you? And we understand that. And that's why in our groups, we get room to wrestle with that. We don't ask you to commit to the wheelbarrow to be We don't ask you to pretend to know things you don't know, and we will do you the courtesy of not pretending to know things that we don't know. We understand that discipleship is a journey of starts and stops and weakness and strength, and we're delighted to make that journey together with you and there's just a ton we don't know, and we want to acknowledge that, and we want to wrestle with these things together in our groups. But I also want to remind you what it means to wrestle with things. Think about actually wrestling a human being. Can you imagine how hard it would be to wrestle somebody if you were standing in water that had no bottom? What do you stand on? What do you push off? There are things that are solid. There is a foundation that's certain. And I want to go over those foundations over the series so that even as you wrestle in your groups, and you may wrestle with whether you believe those, and that's fine. But I want you to know this is where we plant our feet in order to wrestle with the questions we wrestle with every day of how does that work at this moment in my life in this circumstance. There's been an interesting thing that's happened to me that's been troubling for me personally. I mean, I think it's happened to a lot of people, but this is one of the things that has resonated with me that's been part of the last few years in America which has troubled me and caused me to think a little bit differently. And that's the number of friends that I have who taught me about endurance and perseverance and faith, who taught me how to focus and stay focused on what's true and what's real, who have just gone off the deep end. And I don't just mean my opinion is, because they don't agree with me. I mean, on foundational issues, that are just no longer there. And there's a part of me that, when that happens, wants to say, is it even possible? Can you endure in faithful perseverance and, and, and patience to the end? Or do we all tip out somewhere before that, and then God in his grace, he's there right I mean, I know that's true. But is it, is, it, is, it, is it actually possible? And Jesus seems to indicate, when he talks about the house and the rock, that, you know, it is possible. There is a foundation which will not collapse. And I was reminded of this in the last week. I want to tell you not about the friends of mine who I don't know where they're gone. Of what they're doing and why they let go of what seemed to me to be the gospel of grace. I want to tell you about a friend of mine, 93 years old, died last week. Faith, focus, oh. constant. His name's Herschel Martindale. I'm not going to give you the names of my friends that I'm not happy with, <clears throat> but I give you the name of Herschel Martindale. Herschel Martindale was when I met him. He was older than I am now. When I met him, he was approaching the age where a pastor, a lot of pastors, are thinking about retiring. They're thinking about being done. But everything I know about his life was only beginning then. He was a Plymouth Brethren pastor. He led a Plymouth Brethren church, and it was a successful church. And it was good, and he was kind of a big deal. He was on the radio, and he would preach at conferences, And he was just a solid guy. And one day as he's preaching at a conference, a young upstart college kid came up to him. Not me. This is not about me. A young upstart college kid came up to him. This is before I was even. And challenged him. And said, are you reaching the world with the gospel of grace at this church? Herschel Martindale took the long look, and as this young upstart college kid who had no business speaking to this really smart, mature, believing, faithful man, as he listened to what he said, he heard God calling him in the wheelbarrow. He heard God saying, you can live out your days here, and it'll be comfortable. Or you can listen to this guy who's clearly got some things wrong, and see where it goes. And Herschel Martindale and this young man, his name is Jim Potter, they got on a bus, essentially, to make a long story short, they got on a bus, they traveled across the country, and they began sharing the gospel on college campuses. So it's happening. They weren't the only ones doing this. It was back in the 70s. Calvary Chapman was doing something similar. Um, what's that? Campus Crusade, you had some other people popping up. Yeah, college campuses were kind of a rich place to be. And they did it. The only process they did, they, they raised up. Churches. Their goal was to plant churches. They didn't want to just plant ministries. They wanted to plant actual churches because they believed that's what decided should happen. And they planted churches. They planted them across the country. And in their zealousness to make it happen, they raised up kids who were 20, 21, 22, newly saved, and put them in positions of pastorship. And as you can guess, some of that went pretty badly. I was ordained as a pastor at 22. That would not have happened if it were not for Herschel Martin day. And it might have gone pretty badly, but God was very gracious, and here I right today. But Herschel Martin David pressed on for the next 33 years of his life that I knew him. And he founded an entire movement, hundreds and hundreds of churches across the world. The world, international, to this day. You can find them in Italy, Latin America, Germany, uh, China, the churches all over because he pressed on. And I saw his hand behind things that happened at Great Commission that I hadn't seen at other places. There were a number of times when the thing looked like it might go off the rails. And what Herschel Martindale did was he didn't worry about whether it went off the rails. He kept saying, if it's time to go off the rails and God's going to do something else, God will do something else. But if we still want to be part of what God wants to do, we have to stay humble. We have to be willing to change. He put out something I've never seen in another denomination do, something called the Weaknesses paper, where he sat down, they sat down on board, and they wrote down, they looked and they said, who's been hurt by our hurry to raise pastors too quickly? Because some people had. Some churches went over here, and some over there. Who's been hurt? Marjorie Marndega said, you know, there's tens and tens of thousands of people in our movement now. How can we apply Matthew and go to each of those people in apologize? And they did. And they put out a paper which delineated it, which said, would you please spread this around? If you know of anybody who's been hurt, we want to get with them, not to persuade them that they're wrong, but to tell them they're right. And to so apologize. I've never seen a denomination of the size of Great Commission and I don't believe it ever would have happened. Virgil am not still, him. when I became pastor, I had somebody in my church who was not a happy man. And he took it out on me. <laughs> and he was intimidating. I was terrified of him. I was speaking of a friend of mine who also knew him years and years ago, in fact, worked with him more closely than I did. And he said it really well, he said that at one point, this this uh, this individual that he was co-pastoring that wanted to have this meeting with the whole church and he wanted to go one direction and Andy wanted to go another way in, and the direction that this man wanted to go seemed questionable to, to Andy my friend. And so I talked with the the board uh, and he said, Well what do you guys think? Uh, and they said, Well here's what's gonna happen. But his name's Bill. You don't know, I'll say Because I can't figure out how to make the name of this mall. Yeah, like, hey, on my head at So so he said, here's what's gonna happen. They said, what's going to happen is Phil is going to line up 150 verses, because he's good at that. And you're going to line up two or three really solid verses. And you're going to come together, and you're going to share what you think, and everybody in the church is going to know you're right. And then Phil's going to speak, and everybody in the church is still going to know you're right, and we're all going to vote with Phil. Because that is who Phil was. He was persuasive, timidly, sincere. Full of conviction. Well, the reason I mention him is because one of the convictions he had when I was a pastor was that he should have my job instead of me. And he had me in three quarters convinced that was true. And so, Herschel Martindale, the head of this entire movement, came to see me, pastor of a small church, 75, 80 people, maybe 100 at that point pastor of a small church, he came to see me to help me deal with this situation. And he sat down with me, and he said this. He said to me, David, this is a rough time for you, and I know." He said, "I, I want to tell you three things. And I want you to remember this. And I don't ever want you to forget these three things. He said, "Okay," and he said, "The first thing is, when you hit crisis like this, and this won't be the last one you hit, you've got to be a man of faith. Don't just look at what's in front of you. Look at who God is. Look at who Jesus is. Look at what He calls you to. Take the road of faith always. Be a man of faith." And I cannot tell you how often I have thought of that, because he's right. Our lives are full of crises. And I've come back to that so often, and that is so clear to me. And then he said, David, here's the second thing I don't ever want you to forget. Be a man of humility. He says, when people pick at you and they criticize you unfairly, your temptation is going to be to dig your heels in and become proud. Even if they're wrong, it would be wrong for you to become proud. Be a man of humility. And I cannot tell you how often I've thought of that. Not only have I thought of that over and over in my life, but with my own leaders, when I raise up leaders in the church, that is one of the key things I look for. Are they men and women of humility? Can they be taught? Can they change? Can they grow? Can they learn? It's so clear in my head. And he said, now David, here's the third thing I want to tell you and I don't ever want you to forget. And to this day, I don't have a clue what that third thing was. I forgot. From... <laughs> <laughs> now, this is hilarious to me, because this is a really pivotal moment in my life. And Herschel was very careful to say to me, I don't want you to ever forget these three things. And I can't remember the third thing. And I actually asked Herschel years later. I sat down to him and I said, do you remember that you came to me? I was a nobody. I mean, I saw nobody when I was asking him this question. So. I was just a guy You came to me. My church was struggling. Um, It was in relation to Phil. And he's like, oh, I remember Phil. Do you remember that you came to talk to me? He said, yeah, I remember that. I said, you said to me, there are three things I never want you to forget. Do you know what they were? He doesn't know either. (laughs) I said, you said, be a man of faith or be a man of humility. He said, that's good advice. I said, well, that's the third one. He said, I have no idea. And then he said something I've often thought in jest. He said, but it was probably the most important one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the fact is, when I first met Virgil, he was in the place a lot of people would be winding down, retiring, thinking of moving forward. And up to the day he died, he remained humble and faithful and focused. And there were, and I don't even think this is the mark, but it helps us to understand. I think there are untold thousands and thousands of people that owe their relationship with Christ, too. Now, that's not who I want to be. I don't think the thousands and thousands is the point. I've become really comfortable with that. In fact, they're very grateful I'm not a celebrity pastor. They don't turn out well mm-hmm. But I do want to be like him. But I'm ready to do Know that I stay faithful and humble in his And see, Herschel is that house. He, he held that foundation, and the waves came and they crashed, and he just kept going. He just stayed constant and present. See, I. I kind of want to challenge you to get in the wheelbarrow, But that's not really my main point tonight. I do want to challenge you to put all your eggs in one basket, because I have seen in my own life there's really, I don't know a better way to it. Because Jesus, we can't trust him. It doesn't mean I understand everything he's done. I understand less of what he's done than I don't know how to say this to you. I don't understand more of what he's done than I do understand. But that do you understand what I said? <laughs> uh, there's a lot I don't understand. That's the only thing. But what I want you to think about is, what does it mean to in the wheel right? Because if what you think that means is it just means you're you're so caught up with great Blonde and spiel, and you're so caught up in the cheering, that maybe you hear someday a uh, pastor calls you to commitment, and he tickles your your guilt DNA and your fear DNA and your desire to have purpose DNA. And you rush into that wheelbarrow, you're ready to go. If that's what you think it means, it is possible that wheelbarrow will fall because it might not be where God is pushing. I want you to build a foundation that you can count on. That's what I want. And I want you to count on that foundation. So I do want you to get Jesus' wheelbarrow. But I want you to do it because it makes sense. I want you to do it because it's right. And I want you to do it because it's the only chance you have to get from New York to Ontario without a thought, if that's your goal. Now, some of you are like me, and you like jumping wholeheartedly, you're too excited picture. I have lived a lot of my life that way. My poor kids and wife have had me come along. And I know sometimes it's stressful to be with a guy who's on the edge of a limb sawing it off behind you. <laughs> But I try not to do that too much. more. But if you're that kind of guy, that's a great way. Just fine. Approach life that way. Jump in a little bit because it's an exciting adventure. But whether you are or not, understand that when Jesus says, this is the best foundation, that's really what I want to That's really what I want to So the goal of the next few months is to share what are the things that we be confident about. If you're looking at your watch and you is he going to now talk about foundations of the faith? No, don't worry. The goal today has been to just prep. It's an intro. What's that? Just making sure that's not the voice of God. I think it was just a helicopter. <laughs> it was. The goal today has just been to be prep what we're doing, why it's important to look at the foundation. So, As we're hitting these troubling times in America, and we ask, what is the the church to do? What the church is to do is stand on its foundation. We do not have to be rocked by anything that happens in our country as a church, as believers. If it cling to the foundation, we have. The truth of the church is that it has thrived under the worst kinds of storms. It hasn't only thrived under the worst kinds of storms. It's also thrived when there's been serenity. But that's the point. It can thrive not because of the circumstances around it, but it's it, As long as we cling to the foundations. And that's what I want. The things that we can cling to that don't change with culture or convenience. And so what we're going to talk about over the next few months is we're going to be really careful to try not to sneak in ideas that are just ideas I like. Which just to be honest, every pastor I know and most of the pastors I know are very good, respectful, faithful people doing their best. I'm including myself in this list of every pastor I know. Every pastor I know has at some point in a sermon taken an opportunity to spin off of a really solid scriptural idea to present an opinion they're really fond of. What I want to do is focus only on those things we know for sure. The things that are actually foundational. Because I think part of what's happened to the church in America is that we have blurred the line and people are no longer clear what is actually the gospel and what is just stuff. But, oh, that we want. Well, I want to not commit that error. So the things we're going to talk about over the next few months, and I think it'll take months. So we're going to take our time. I could be wrong. Maybe it won't. Maybe there'll be some you when I'm done and it won't take forever. But the things we're going to talk about are the nature of God. Who else? The nature of man. What do we know about humankind? God's plan and the gospel of grace. What do we know about that plan and how does it unfold and what is the gospel? The church. What is the purpose of the church? Why do we exist and why are we here? And then I want to talk about the beginning. And it may seem weird to talk about the beginning at that moment, but let me explain to you that what I mean by the beginning, you might think of was the end of the world. C.S. Lewis has a really, really awesome moment at the end of his *Narnia* Chronicles, where he, I don't remember the exact words, but he basically explains it that way. The children are coming, and everything is kind of going away, and they're and they're moving further in. And basically, C.S. Lewis says something like, "And this was not the end; this was just the beginning of the children's stories." And then I want you to think about this. I'll give you this last verse as we as we move into this. There's really two reasons I want to share this. One is for you. And that's probably the main reason. I, I would I gladly say if that were the only reason, it'd be enough. One reason is for you. I want you to be a virtual marketer. I want you to have that <laughs> foundation. I want you to reach whatever age you reach. Solidly. But there is another reason. And the other reason is that because it is a troubling time for our country. And the church is intended to be the incarnation, the body of Christ. We are intended to show people what the love of Christ looks like. We are intended to be that thing that people see and say, oh, oh, oh. Jesus says we're salt and light to the world. And you know what's fascinating about being salt and light? They don't do anything, right? Jesus didn't say, you're salt, and then we go, oh, so it means that we're supposed to do the following things. You know what salt does? It just is. When you put salt on food, it's the salt itself that just is. It just, it just be salt. When Jesus says, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness, that's his point. He's not saying, what good is salt if it stops doing something? He says, what good is salt if it stops being salt? Light. Well, it's like you. Well, you light. What does light do? Well, Light's up the room. Yeah, what well, you just said, that light just be light. It erases darkness. How does it do it? By being light. You know the church's call is to be. And the problem with it, when we see the church's call is to do, is that we spend most of the time, a lot of times, doing things that other people can do just as well or maybe better. But nobody else can be the body for us. And I think, if we understand the foundations, it will help us to become. And if we can become, then we can be part of, I think, what God is doing across our country, which is leading other portions of the church to become. And as we all become, it assaults the culture. That it lights the darkness, but it's really important you don't get this backwards. That you don't say our goal is to go make the culture better. No, that's just what happens when we become. So this is why I share it too, because I want us to focus to become. And this is the verse I want to leave you with along those lines. Paul says this. Consequently, consequently, because of the gospel. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives his spirit Luke tells us in the book of Acts the primary reason that the church grew by tens of thousands of thousands again not even our goal not even sure it will happen there's I mean the church in America will definitely grow by tens of thousands it happens all the time but there's a reason that Luke tells us the church in Acts was especially effective when it was and we like to go back. You'll hear this a lot. A lot of pastors are about, We're going to be that New Testament church. We're going to figure out what they did. We're going do what they did. That's going to be our church growth formula. And then everybody likes to talk about how we are New Testament church, and I don't know what you are. <laughs> Elitism is almost a, a pretty good example, that you've lost your focus, by the way. But, but you know what he really says? It's not the giving and sharing of things. Acts 2.42 is good. There's some things they do which we should do. They pray, they fellowship, they share everything in common. I hope we do all that. By the way, we do a lot of that. But that is also just what happens. Luke doesn't say, this is how they grew. He says, this is who they have become. This is who they have become. And what Luke really tells us is the reason for the church's effectiveness is that anytime people came in contact with the church of God, what they said was, surely, God. Is alarming. Too often, that is not what people would say. Nice. Mm-hmm. It is sad because it's such a wasted opportunity. Because if we aren't that building, there isn't. We are that building. We're called to become that building. Where people look at us and say, surely God is among them. They may hate us. They may like us. They may join us. They may ignore us. But do they say, surely God is among them? I think if we stick to this, if we cling to the foundations and we become and stop doing Anything that doesn't come as a result of becoming. If we focus on things that we like, that are not foundational, if we continue to obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ, nobody will ever say that of us. Paul had moments in his life that I call divine inspiration. No, I don't. That would be easy. I call them divine sarcasm. See, sarcasm is something I generally tell all of us we should avoid. <laughs> and then you get into the scriptures, and Paul actually uses it on a couple of occasions. And I call it divine sarcasm because I think only he's allowed to do it. It was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and it was a gift. the spiritual gift of divine sarcasm. But you know what? He only pulls it out at the same moments that Jesus pulled it out. Because he also does it. And it's when people were scourging. Gospel of Jesus Christ. Not when they were just struggling or messed up or even 180% wrong. But when they were pretending that something was the gospel which wasn't, that's when Paul got mad. That's when he said, I wish they just would go in the whole way and emasculate themselves. And if that is the divine sarcasm, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Jesus can hold you. He can carry you. Your formulas and your plans will always break down. Your will will sometimes crumble, and your strength will repeatedly fail you. Your intellect is going to prove flawed. Yes, even yours. And your character will not be what you had hoped. Your insecurities will rise up again and again. But Jesus, not an idea of Jesus, but the actual person, of Jesus, can sustain you. He can hold you. He who crossed the Jordan by foot can carry you on his back. We have a chance to become solid, and we have a chance to become the volume of God. And that's what we want to do. And so, next week, we'll start with the nature of God. Just a small thing. (laughs) But it's an important place to start. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but a Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens, that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.